ever think about the technologies that we utilize to live our lives, our modern lives, among them inventions that honestly just had so much utility, they were implemented pretty much as soon as they came into being without a, without a real thought as to what the long-term effects of them could possibly be. Electricity. Changed society irrevocably, changed the world completely. Like you're not about to unelectrify a city, right? Instantly, it freed thousands of people from manual labour, allowed efficiency in transport, manufacturing, food production, things that we rely on every single day. How will we move the electrons around? Oh no, we'll burn some coal. Great idea, Orville. Jolly good. What about the smoke? Ah, look, I understand your concern, but have you seen how much medicine that we can make that can save millions of lives using this stuff? We'll worry about the pollution later. Right? The car, the automobile, brought freedom of movement, allowed people to live outside of cities in ways that they've never before dreamed. Like, no longer you didn't need a horse anymore, right? Cars were designed to go 100 kilometres an hour well before things like, I don't know, brakes, crumple zones, airbags, speed limits, seat belts. A lot of people had to get maimed and killed and have their lives destroyed before, like, any of those things was even introduced or even became law. And this is, this is not unlike what we're looking at right now in Australia with the recent approval of psychedelics for therapeutic use in treating mental illness, notably psilocybin or magic mushrooms, and it's used to help people with treatment-resistant depression. We are on the cusp of being able to help people in a way that conventional medications have been able to do so far, used correctly and in a strictly controlled way, many experts around the world believe that psilocybin actually has the potential to revolutionise the field of mental health treatment and even offer an alternative to traditional pharmaceutical approaches. Now, like all medicines, there are phases of human trials that not only hope to show that, you know, the medicine works against the placebo, but, you know, that it does what it says on the box, but also what is the safest, what's the best way to use the medicine to get the most positive effect, the most therapeutic effect with the smallest amount of risk for the person taking the medicine. Now, speaking with Adam, I discovered that in Australia, these very powerful medications have been approved by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. But the trials that Adam's working on, because he's one of the people leading these trials, they're not quite finished. We're yet to get a consensus on what the exact parameters are around using these incredibly powerful compounds, which could really, truly help people who have literally tried absolutely everything to get some relief and, and have a, a, you know, a hope of, of enjoying life or having a day where they're not dealing with this kind of depression. So what do these medicines promise? What are the risks if we don't get this bit, this crucial bit right? Well, that is exactly what we're talking about today with my guest, Dr. Adam Bayes. Adam is not only a highly esteemed clinical academic scientist and a senior research fellow at Sydney's Black Dog Institute. If you are one of the people that read my book, you'll know that Adam is my psychiatrist. And I couldn't be more grateful that he agreed to come on the show to talk about this. I can't wait for you to meet him. First, though, I have to play some ads because I like to pay the people that work with me here at the show. Here's some ads. Back in a moment with Adam. 
This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The CGA, as of the 1st of July, has um, said that for treatment-resistant depression, psilocybin can be prescribed and MDMA can be prescribed for PTSD. Basically, the drugs remain illegal, Schedule 9, for all other purposes other than those two indications. Mm -hmm. These drugs can only be prescribed by a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. and that the treatment has to be approved by an ethics committee. At least theoretically, clinicians would be able to provide these drugs outside of a research protocol. So it's, it's very interesting. And we're one of the first places in the world wow. for this to happen. That is psychiatrist and researcher Dr. Adam Bayes. This is Osher Ginsberg. Better than yesterday. Hello, welcome. Thanks for being here. This is Better Than Yesterday. Uh, Thank you for being a part of the show. This is a podcast that's here to make your day-to-day better than yesterday. That's what it does on the that's what it says on the box. It's, it's by having a conversation with someone that you'll hear something that makes you go, ah, and think about something differently and today than it was the day before. Uh, we've been doing this since 2013. Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays we're here. Mondays, Wednesdays with a guest, and Fridays it's, it's you and me. I am Osher Ginsberg. That's me. Hi. I'm a podcaster. I'm an author. I'm a TV host. I'm a parent. I'm a dad. I'm a stepdad. I'm a, a recipient of a shitload of titanium in my femur on my right-hand side because I've got an artificial hip. Uh, what else have I got? Uh, all kinds of other shit. What do I do? I lift weights in my backyard listening to nerdy academic arguments on podcasts about the utility of AI before testing, you know, other things that are, you know, being deployed before testing properly or seat belts are put in place, essentially. Uh, what else do I do? Oh yeah. I'm currently uh, making a comedy show. <laughs> yeah. I'm making a satirical news show. Uh, it's called NTNN and it's a, uh, 
It's a satirical news show because I always wanted to do a satirical news show and I like to think I'm quite good at it. And, you know, the audiences have showed us that we do a good job and um, you can see us. We're playing in Sydney. We've already played Sydney. Then we went and did the Melbourne Comedy Festival, which was freaking amazing. And we're back in Sydney. We're doing, I think, five shows at the Manning Bar and we're live at the Manning Bar uh, the shows are like 8.30, 8.30, 9, 9, and 7.30. So from Wednesday, the 3rd of May, this Wednesday until Sunday, we're playing special guests every night. It's the news of the day. If the news is no longer for you, it's the show for you. All right, because you'll learn everything you need to know about the news and you'll get a take on the news that you've never had before. It's a ton of fun. It's quite seditious. It's naughty. The guests have a wild time. It's super cool. My cast are amazing. They're so talented. It's fucking funny and you'll really dig it. If you need yourself a a bit of a laugh, come along. And most importantly, if you'd like to hear me stop going on about it, um, I've always been doing this show as a way to make it into a TV show. So this is the testing phase or essentially the trial phase and the development phase of a television show. But I just happen to be doing it in front of a crowd. The people who I'm hoping will order say, and we'll take 20 episodes, fuck, make it 30. Those people are coming to one of these shows. I'm not going to say which one because I don't want to freak out the cast, but they're coming to one of these shows. So I need you to come. I need you to come and laugh. I need you to come and have a great time. I need you to come and go, whoa, you can't say that. I need all of that. Tickets aren't very expensive. The link is in the show notes. If you can't afford to come, just email me. Send us your email at gmail.com. I'll put you on the door if I can. Get in. I'd rather have a seat with someone in it having a laugh than an empty seat. So let me know. I'd love love to have you there. So... Come to the show. Tickets in the show notes. Let me tell you about my guest. We are talking today with Dr. Adam Bayes. He is one of the doctors who saved my life. There is a number of those doctors, but he is definitely one of them. Dr. Adam Bayes is a clinical academic scientist. He is a senior research fellow, and he works at Sydney's Black Dog Institute, and he sees patients a few times a week. I'm lucky, lucky enough to be one of those patients. Now, I have interviewed Adam before. He agreed to have me interview him before. And uh, it was for a documentary that I was a part of making for SBS. It was a, a suicide prevention documentary called A Matter of Life and Death. It was a great chat. And unfortunately, due to the pressures of, of the edit process and what ended up being like the interview with Adam ended up not making it into the show, mainly because we had so many other stories to tell, which were so very powerful, one of which we'll speak about today. So I missed introducing Adam to you through that, but I couldn't be more thrilled that he said yes to coming on this show today because I'm just so thrilled that more people get to hear his voice. He's such an incredibly smart, incredibly smart man. I wrote all about my interactions with Adam in, in, in my book, and, and I was very, very happy that both he and Wally, his dog, were there when um, they answered the call for this podcast. And um, if you've read the book, you know about Wally. Adam is a very special kind of doctor. Uh, for one, he's very handsome. Uh, for two, he's younger than me, like significantly so. He was the first doctor as I, as you get older, you know, the people on the TV playing sport, they're older than you. And then they're about your age. And then they're all younger than you. And then one day all the umpires are younger than you. And then soon your doctors are younger than you. And that's what happened. I walk in the door and I need some help. And like, fuck, there's this guy. He's, you're a child. I, I finished high school before you started primary school. God damn it. But he's bloody smart. He's so good at what he does. And he's a very special kind of psychiatrist because he is a man who's just got a love for research. He's a very, very curious person. And psychiatrists can be, in my experience with other psychiatrists, they can be tricky because they're very smart. They're the smartest person they've ever known. So they don't like to think that they don't know the answer. They like to be, oh, no, this is it. 
sorry, that's a man's voice. I've not ever seen a female psychiatrist. It's just the, how I've been clinically treated. I've seen plenty of female psychologists, but not psychiatrists at this point. So Adam is not really driven by the core question, how can I prove that I'm right? And how can I keep showing that I'm right? He is very much driven by the core question, how can I be sure that I'm right? And this is transformative. And it was transformative for me because when I was very ill and I was on all kinds of drugs and I'd made some progress, but I just wasn't quite getting over the line, he was willing to question his original hypothesis as to what was going on with me mentally and question and have a think about, well, what are the drugs we're on? And maybe there's another way here. Maybe we're, let's try another way of treatment. He was willing, he was willing to question his original, you know, hypothesis on, on what was happening with me. And with me explore other possibilities of treatment and other possibilities of perhaps diagnosis. And, and together we got around trying another form of treatment and another angle. And that ended up, that ended up being one of the ones that started to work. And it was a huge turning point for me getting better because I got a little bit better, but not a lot better. And I was kind of stagnant going, this, this can't be it. This can't be the rest of my life like this. And amazingly, Adam was on board when I came to him and told him that. I got really lucky with Adam. I understand that not every psychiatrist thinks like that. I also understand I got really lucky with him because not every psychiatrist is so actively hands-on with research. And, you know, both my folks were doctors, so I know what it is to be a doctor. You have to stay actively engaged. You do a thing called vocational registration and you have to, you know, show up to a certain number of conferences per year, read papers, da-da-da, to keep up to date with things, you know. And some doctors, you know, once they get in their groove, they may not really be willing to put too much effort into, you know, maybe changing their mind about things. Some doctors, not all. But thankfully, Adam is well and truly somebody who thinks with a research mind about everything. When we made our first film for SBS, the, the suicide prevention one called A Matter of Life and Death, I was incredibly fortunate to witness a patient who had consented to be on camera go through one of Adam's research trials. We speak about it today. It was the use, uh, novel use of ketamine in uh, treatment-resistant depression. It was astonishing. So Adam is involved in another trial at the moment, late-stage trials of the therapeutic use of psilocybin mushrooms in treating people with uh, catastrophic treatment-resistant depression, people who are out of options, people who've tried everything. Because a whopping one in three people are treatment-resistant when it comes to depression. That's a huge number. In this conversation with Adam, we talk about the novel use of ketamine, uh, what treatment-resistant depression is like, TMS or the magnetic stimulation of the brain as a form of treatment, the incredible promise that psilocybin has for helping so many people in a fairly ongoing way with only a really small amount of treatments. We speak about all of that. However, with the approval date of these medicines coming up very, very quickly in Australia, like they're already approved, like it becomes law in July 1 in Australia, 2023. And as Adam describes, there's so much work yet to be done around the trials of using this and the safeguards and use cases and, and who gets to prescribe it and how does it get prescribed. Adam speaks in this conversation about how we're actually at an enormous risk of blowing this opportunity blowing this incredible research out of the water and, and pushing the research into psychedelics in this use case back 70 years or more. Because, you know, he's definitely not 
among the first people to explore this as an idea in the 1950s and 1960s, early studies into this stuff showed really promising results for using psilocybin to treat various mental health conditions. But shall we say research into psychedelic drugs was, you know, the, you know, the ethics around some of those studies weren't as you know robust as they are now. And some of those drugs maybe found their way out of the labs and the research was shut down because of the association of the drugs with the counterculture movement, the ethics around some of the studies, some of the things that people unknowingly being exposed to these, like we talk all, all about all this. And that was it. No more research into this. That's a bad drug, forever illegal. So they've been really hard won steps to get us back to a place where credible medical research can be done around these incredibly powerful substances that hold so much promise. One of the key factors propelling this renewed interest was uh, the publication of a landmark study in 2006 by John Hopkins University, which had found that when administered under controlled conditions, psilocybin produced lasting positive changes in attitudes, mood, and behavior among healthy volunteers. We are very close to something that could be transformative for millions of people around the world, but a wrong step here could set us back another 70 years. Whatever you thought about psychedelics, Truly, be prepared to think again. I really hope you enjoy spending time with Dr. Adam Vase as much as I do, and you get to do it for you know way less than the three hundred dollars an hour that I spent. <laughs> I don't give a shit how much like it costs me a lot of money to see him. I've got health insurance, but it still costs a lot of money to see a person like that. And I recognise how much it costs, but that that I would pay that ten times over to you know. I have been so desperately sick. I would have given you all of my super, every cent I owned. To not feel that way. So I know, you know, it's weird to talk about money and doctors and the incredible privilege that I have to have been able to afford to see him at the time. But for me, that is an, I invested that money in the rest of my life. You know, I have a family now, I'm alive, worth every cent, (laughs) but you get it for free. So that's that's nice. Uh, And look, just a note here, um, you can't really have a conversation. It's impossible to have a conversation about the risks associated with chronic depression without discussing suicide. Adam is one of the doctors who helped me when I was in a suicidal state. If you're not up to hear a chat about that today, that's fine. Plenty of other episodes. We got episodes back to 2013. So there's lots of other things to dive into. If you do need something to talk to, uh, if this conversation brings anything up for you in Australia, you can call Lifeline 13 11 14. If you're outside of Australia, see your doctor, see your GP if you can. It's all in context. We're not a sensationalist about it. If anything, this conversation, we use that to talk about how much hope there is using these kind of medications and various treatments and, and how effective treatment is um, when people are in that state. It was effective for me. I, and I, you know, as you'll hear, I am not a candidate for this medication. Fuck, I'm so bummed. I can't even tell you how pissed off I am that I can't. Because <laughs> I thought, this is it. I got sober before I tried any of that shit. I was like, this is it. I'll finally get to do it. He goes, no, you go, fuck. You'll hear why. You'll hear why I can't take it. So enjoy this conversation. Uh, this is Dr. Adam Bayes. And uh, if we come into the conversation early enough, the beautiful rescue greyhound, Wally. I've got Willie. Oh, hey, buddy. There he is. Um, so if you're... um. If you're watching this, there's will probably be a YouTube episode at some point, but uh, I've written about Willie in my book, 
Um, that is Willie. That is the Zoomy dog, the nuts detector. You'll never say that, but uh, <laughs> I had a psychologist once uh, who used to work in the criminal justice system, and there was a, a moment where he would describe it, and it happened more than once. This particular judge, we were like, trying to figure out what to do with the, you know, with the perp, and just meet me in my chambers, and the judge would say, you know, let's call this psychologist Steve. It's not his name, uh, Steve. Look, I've heard you've references i've read your report i understand just tell me is he nuts and then steve in the in the privacy of the chambers would go yeah he's nuts like okay thank you and they come back out and go all right then mate we've got a great place for you to go and there it is <laughs> so you're, you're you're not saying anything and you know no no should you but your dog has done excellent work oh. one of those things between um your dog and my actual friend steve they're two really great um uh indicators that I was getting better. It was my actual friend, Steve, who said to me, you're much easier to be around than you used to be. It used to be yeah. really hard being around you. Um, that was great. But I'm, I'm really grateful that we can speak today. We did we did do an interview that was for the film A Matter of Life and Death, but it ended up not yes. being a part of the cut. Um, yes. Which is always editing decisions are terrible and those are above me, but uh, I'm grateful that we can talk and that you'd be willing to speak because, um, you know, yes. you are my psychiatrist and I have written about you and, you know, you are a very important person in my life, but you are also someone who is, I don't know how I've landed backwards down the stairs and on my feet to get you, who is this super research mega power at the Black Dog Institute. I don't know about that, but oh, yeah. Oh, come on, man. Well, it, you know, the fact that you are, as someone who's in the research space, you're you're yeah. looking you're looking for you're ask, always asking the questions like what if what if there's another way what if what if we're not right yeah what if we're not right and then and that's an extraordinary kind of doctoring um, that's rare to find in particularly in psychiatry and I wanted to know like what because most people they do research as a part of their uni degree and then they even never see it again what what was yes. it that kept you in in the research world yeah I was uh, sort of by accidents that I ended up getting into research because when I, when I did my medical training in psychiatry, I was very interested in patients and the clinical side of things and their stories and, and whatnot. And, uh, and then it was actually just by chance, I worked with a clinical academic at Prince of Wales hospital and sort of got some exposure. So he, you know, had, had patients that he managed with mood disorders, but also had a research component and was doing research at the university. And I sort of said, oh, you know, maybe I can dip my toe in the water. And then it sort of ended up becoming a PhD, which I had no plan to do a PhD because I thought I've done too much study already and training. And I actually had zero interest in doing one. It just sort of happened. And then after that, I, yeah, I've just sort of been interested in the power of research, you know, like I, I still like seeing patients. I've got to say that's important. I couldn't do research full time, but just, um, it just opened up a whole new world and it, I guess it allowed to think out, yeah, you know, think outside of the current paradigm, you know, so often when you're a clinician, you work within a particular clinical framework and, you know, there's guidelines and this is how you do it. And it's, uh, really up to researchers i think to say well what's what's next or how can we do things differently um and then that's what led me into i guess what we're going to talk about today um in part you know talk about 
ketamine and psychedelics, yeah. which are sort of newer treatments for mood disorders that really weren't in the guidelines 10 no, years ago when I was doing psychiatry. Not at all. Yeah. And if we said um, a doctor's going to prescribe you ketamine, like people's ears are going to prick oh. up and go, you what? Pardon? How? What? Uh, Indeed. Um, I cannot describe how fortunate I feel to have witnessed um, well, and have a patient even agree to it, allow us to film them undergoing um, the, the yes. ketamine therapy at the Black Dog Institute. Yes. Now, ketamine is known as a party drug and, you know, people talk about the K-hole. There's songs written about it. And yet <laughs> when used, uh, you know, that's an off-label usage, all right? Using ketamine at a dance party is off-label. But, but, it's very off-label. But this is also yep. kind of off-label, but they're trying to get it on-label um, to deal with catastrophic treatment-resistant depression. I was I was yep. having a chat with someone just before about, about this treatment because there's depression and then there's anxiety. And then there's treatment-resistant depression. And then there's yes. catastrophic treatment-resistant depression. Now, could you try using, you know, your, your best psychiatry words? <laughs> Say, for example, someone's kid yes. gets diagnosed with this. How do you explain it to their parents who probably have no medical background at all? It's a great question because sometimes, you know, we can say depression and, and it can be a bit of a generic term because it'll lump a whole lot of different conditions under that name. And that's probably not really great idea because there's a there's a full spectrum so you've got everything from more mild forms of depression you know which might respond quite well to you know some lifestyle changes you know exercise um and some you know some basic counseling it might be just you know a, and it might be a sort of reactive kind of a situation you now a, a breakup or, or something like that and then as you sort of increase in the severity, you, you might need more structured psychological approaches to, to deal with the depression. And then, you know, as it gets more severe and more biological problems of depression, there might be need for medications and, you know, treatments like uh, electroconvulsive therapy or ECT. Many people, when I say, you know, that's, that's it's still, still used and it's very effective. Many people are still surprised to hear that. But, but again, it's in that very severe end of the spectrum where patients might be they can't get out of bed in the mm. morning. They, they might, you know, they struggle to, to think and move. They've tried a lot of things before they get there. Like, <laughs> they try a yeah. lot of, that's not a first line no. treatment. Not a first no. line treatment, but it's a yeah, highly effective treatment. So I guess there's a range of different types of depression. And then when we say treatment resistant depression, this is where patients have failed a number of standard treatments mm. and, and they fail to respond. And, you know, then they might end up, you know, needing to consider something like, electroconvulsive therapy or or some more potent drug treatment. Oh, TMS, would that yeah. come under that? Um, yeah, TMS, yeah, TMS is well, transcranial magnetic stimulation. So that's you know, where the, there's powerful mm. magnets uh, and either outside of the brain, but on the skull, it's non-invasive. Yeah. And basically TMS can either upregulate or downregulate uh, activity in the brain. Yeah. Um, and we can target that at different yeah. areas that are related to it's depression. Inc so incredible, incredible stuff. Um, I, I, I sat, I yeah. sat in the chair, the TMS chair, and I had the, they just did the motor strip test on me. They showed, showed well, me how they could make my hands move by firing <laughs> magnetic forces through my brain, which is uh, astonishing. Uh, it's the, a pretty wild, yeah, isn't it? It's yeah. incredible stuff. The the idea though of of you know catastrophic depression. It's I remember when I was quite sick, and we work. You know, you work with me when I was quite sick. The 
you yeah. know, going outside on a beautiful day, beautiful blue sky day, hearing yeah. birds tweeting, you know, a, a, a child, giggling child runs by being chased by their dad and, and, oh. and, and being absolutely unable to see any, any positivity in that moment because, you yeah. know, my brain had decided that, it, you know, was running a filter of just terrible through everything, yeah. my ability to appreciate the world, my ability to process the input coming through my eyes, my ears, my nose, was completely dysregulated. Um, and yes. people can live like this for years. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It, it, it's, um, you know, a certain proportion of patients. I mean, basically after a third of patients have treatment-resistant depression. One third. Holy moly. One third. Yeah. So they, they try multiple trials of antidepressants um, and without getting a full remission. And so, yeah, it can become, yeah. for some patients, you know, a chronic condition. It means they, you know, they can't work. Yeah. Um, you know, they can really fall through the cracks. Yeah. And it's not, a, it's like, because people, it's like alcohol, you know, people go, well, just don't have a drink. I'm like, yeah, but you're thinking that with your brain. You're thinking that with a brain yeah. that can actually go, oh, no, I'm not drinking tonight. Like, I'm an alcoholic. It's like, no, I can't actually do that. It's just, it's, yes. it's impossible yes. for me to do that. And I have to be in acceptance of that, uh, which I'm grateful for them. I'm you wrong. But the, the right. idea of like, mate, just go for a walk, do some sit-ups, you know, put on a, a Huberman podcast and, you know, go for a hike. You'll feel great. Like that's you, that's yeah. you thinking about someone else's depression with your brain. But when the brain's that Indeed. dysregulated, when the brain's that unhealthy, you know, how, how can we kind of, you know, help people understand what it's like that you can't just think your way out of it or you can't just snap out of it? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it does come back to, you know, the different severity of depression or different types of depression so that most of us probably experience more mild, mild forms of feeling down, you know, and it might be situational or whatever. So we can sort of get some sense of a low mood. But when we talk about more biological depression, it's not just the mood that's affected. It's, it's lack of enjoyment in, in, in almost everything. Mm -hmm. So that anhedonia being the other... Um, really prominent symptom um, and a lot of sort of biological changes like reduced appetite, insomnia, waking early in the morning, can't go back to sleep, cognitive impairments and foggy thinking and feeling physically slowed down. So in, in melancholic depression, patients, you know, feel like they're moving through, walking through honey oh. or they're, 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 it's hard to, it's difficult to move. Yeah. Um, so that's, it's more than just mood, you know, it's both, it's, it's mood and cognition and also a, a motor condition, yeah. if you will, a, a physical condition. And that can lead uh, with enough time that can lead to all kinds of, you know, chronic problems in, in a patient. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And, and also throwing in suicidal thinking as well, that that can, of course, accompany this and, um, you know, that's a, you know, a really potential tragic consequence of untreated depression. And I'll put a big trigger warning and have a big chat okay. before we start, um, you know, right. as I do whenever I speak about this stuff. Um, but yeah. when you consider that that's going to be your day and you cannot think, I remember it really well, like I no. could not conceive a day when I wouldn't wake up like that. I just couldn't, yes. couldn't imagine a future where it would be any different. You start to go, well, that's a long time between, huh, am I up for that? And you start to, well, you know, have these thoughts, which are as terrifying because it's, they, they, they feel rational. Um, 
And, yes. and, and it's the most scary part, you know, for me, it was the most scary part was Indeed. that it came like, oh, I'm a bit cold. I think I'll get a, I'll go get a jumper. That'll fix my cold problem. Like it was like that. It was like, yeah, oh, yeah, I've yeah. got this thing that won't stop at all. Oh, oh, that'll fix that. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it just came, it was like that. It was so easy. I was like, whoa, mm. because it was uh, so easy. Well, and well, that, well. That's when I started making phone calls. That's why I started calling, Good. calling yeah, people. I mean, that's. You did the right I had thing. To, mate. Yeah, because I was, I was that, lucky. I had, a, I had a bit of a plan in place with, <laughs> you know, with my sober guy who helps me. Uh, so, you know, okay, you're, dealing with, you know, you're dealing with people who are, have tried a lot of things and they might have tried an SSRI yep. or an NSRI. They might have tried. They might have signed up for F45. They might have, you know, got yeah. out of a bad relationship, changed a job. They've done everything and it's still, yep. not, it's still not working. We've heard that people who've used ketamine you know, in other reasons, have reported this right. thing. Is it worth exploring if that could help this person as well? How do you even begin to start? Well, like we'd like to inject patients with ketamine who probably don't ever use ketamine. How do you even begin those kind of trials? The ketamine story is quite interesting. I mean, ketamine has been around for a long, a long time as an anesthetic agent and is still used as an anesthetic agent. So it's been in, in clinical medicine for, you know, more than half a century and is routinely used and also used in children as an anesthetic and it, and it is, you know, largely safe and it's just used as all, you know, typically as a once-off, you know, someone goes in and they have their anesthetic and they, and they pop out. And there was an early study, I did some digging around in the literature. I, I did find, the earliest study I could find was in the 1970s and essentially ketamine was administered to a, a whole sort of bunch of inpatients at the psychiatric hospital, and they had a whole heap of different conditions. And uh, so it wasn't just, just depression, but it seemed to, the conclusion was that it seemed to kind of, you know, loosen them up a bit mentally and allow for some, you know, greater expression and some of their, their difficulties. But it wasn't very, it didn't it sort of, it wasn't too enlightening, really. Mm. And then in the early 2000s, there's a, a couple of small studies where essentially it was just, a single dose of ketamine as an infusion over 40 minutes to patients with, with depression. And essentially it seemed to, the, the data showed it was both, led to both a, a profound um, improvement in mood after a single dose. Um, and it was rapid as well. So it was not like other treatments, which t it's typically taking you know, out SSRIs, SNRIs. It's oh man, take, I, I waited you know, six many... weeks for Lexapro to kick in the first time I took it. Yeah, so it takes a long, <laughs> it takes a long time. I was like, time. look, I'm getting fat I and I don't feel any better. <laughs> Can we? <laughs> I don't, I don't want to have sex with anybody. Like, when does this start to work? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it takes a, it takes it a long work. time. It to, did work eventually. It um, did work. It did work. <laughs> um, so ketamine is sort of interesting that it seemed to work. You know, patients could could show improvement within hours. Yes, yeah. which is pretty. Uh, Pretty amazing yeah. to see, you know. Um, so essentially, those, those some early studies, and then since that time, yeah. there's been more sophisticated uh, trials, and including you know double-blind randomized controlled trials, and have shown, you know, that there is this robust antidepressant and anti-suicidal um, properties of ketamine in treatment-resistant depression, and it's also used in typically prescribed not as on its own. But it's in conjunction yeah. with an oral antidepressant. The uh, the trial that I witnessed, um, w which yeah. was uh, run by Professor Colleen Liu, your colleague there at the Black Dog, yes. she's an unbelievable 
incredible human being. Indeed, I watched, indeed. I interviewed this man before and after, and he was 72. He did, he'd felt this way since he was 12. And yeah. it was like you would see in like an evangelical video uh, that someone's put dubstep behind when someone just gets up like in a right. church and just suddenly they're like, they're mm. just full of this spirit, like which, you know, group dynamics is an interesting thing and that's a whole other podcast to talk about. But um, <laughs> I watched this man completely yeah. transform before my eyes. Like it was an infusion. I think it was about 25 minutes or 30 minutes. And yeah. we came back to short, talk to him and I couldn't believe it was the same human yeah. being. And what it showed me and I what I could simply relate to is that it, it, it showed him that there was a possibility of life outside of what he was experiencing. And yes. in, in this state, and I remember talking to Professor Lou about this, that uh. in this state, the the work gets work does get done to try to help the brain draw some new pathways that then hopefully Absolutely. hopefully start to become stronger and stronger and stronger and then over time like the moment you forget about putting the clutch in when you change gears if you drive stick hopefully over time it becomes more automatic yeah yeah I think that that's that's hundred percent right that it's um, ketamine is a it sort of promotes growth of neurons and increase you know connections between uh, increased synapse formation or connections between neurons and but i think it's also increasingly we've become aware that it needs to be paired with some sort of uh you know a therapy or behavioral activation to sort of take advantage of that neuroplasticity you know so to harness you know the brain that's that's been in this shutdown state yeah. when when ketamine is present uh, so, so sort of so lock in over time some um, increased connections and and hope and hopefully get the patients you know walking forward and coming out of the depressive episode. It's astounding stuff. Um, but ketamine mm. is very much a man-made thing. It's very much uh, constructed. It's a molecule that has been created. Um, it was derived from another anaesthetic in like the fifties, I think. And yet we are surrounded. And it's often the argument by you know pro marijuana people, like we're surrounded by well, plants you know, that, yep. you know, do things to us when we yes. ingest them or smoke them. Now, weed, well, you know, weed's weed, uh, but it's not weed anymore. Weed's now bred to either be the most potent thing on the planet uh, yep. or, you know, you don't even know you've had it. Uh, so that, yes, it's still a plant. Yes, sir, it's a plant. It is a highly, highly crossbred engineered plant, like Yes. You know, yes. the potatoes we get today aren't what potatoes were. They have just been bred that way. Same with corn. And yet there's other instances in, in nature where medicine does come from nature. Um, you know, we yeah. want to talk about psilocybin and the mushrooms, but, you know, there's one I did want to speak to you about, which I've only found out a little while ago about the, um, uh, the Well of the Lunatics in Ireland. Have you heard about this place? So the Well of the Lunatics, it's in uh, County Kerry in Ireland. And okay. for years it was in a place called the Valley of the Mad. And so people who were living, like we're talking like in the middle centuries, you know, middle ages right, kind of stuff, right. like people would travel for miles to come to this place and because yeah. they heard that the wells had restorative powers, all right? And yeah. people ended up, people who were afflicted lived there and had great recovery because they were not only drinking the water from the well, they were eating the watercress that grew around the well. Okay. Years later, in I think in about 10 years ago, 11 years ago, 
there was a chemical analysis done on the water. You want to guess what naturally occurs in that water, Adam? Lithium. Bingo! <laughs> Look at the brain on Adam. Lithium. Lithium naturally yeah. naturally occurs yeah. in this water. And because they were eating the watercress, which had concentrated elements of it, okay. it brought st- and they would, you know, there's stories of them moving away and you know, and, relapsing and then coming coming mm. back and then just living their lives near this well. And it's this incredible example of you know, the earth, the environment that we live in providing mm. a, a medicine that can make people feel a, a whole lot better. I mean, I, I, on that note, there are, look, I think the, it's interesting, I, I, haven't, I wasn't specifically aware of this well, um, but I've definitely read some literature looking at um, concentrations of lithium in, in different regions around the world. So in the, uh, and there is some, I mean, there's been some papers that have suggested that at a population level, that these these regions that have higher concentrations of lithium in the drinking water have lower suicide rates. Move over fluoride. It's a bit, you know, the studies are not definitive, but there is some signal there. Wow. And we're talking about, interestingly, it's, the, the even more interesting thing is we're, we're talking about quite low concentrations. Though. We're not talking about therapeutic right. concentrations that say, I, you know, I prescribe to someone with bipolar disorder or depression. But even at this low concentration level, wow. there is some correlation between suicide rates. That's rate, astounding. Which, which is pretty, pretty incredible. Now, when it comes to, you know, things that people eat that change their brains, um, uh, there's betel nut, there's ayahuasca, which I've uh, never yet done. And until you say, I'm ordering it, I'm not going to do it. And there's, you know, there's also magic mushrooms. Now, both ayahuasca and, yep. and psilocybin, or known as magic mushrooms, psilocybin mushrooms, yep. came and, you know, were used only ever in ritual and only ever, you know, under guidance and, right. and sham- in a shamanistic way. That's and right. it wasn't certainly like, let's drop these and go and watch a Pink Floyd documentary. It was, yep. you know, this is only happens maybe twice in your life ever. And yep. there's a three days in and four days out. And it's really, you know, quite heavily controlled. Now, for one, wh- what is, what is your, you know, kind of curiosity into all this told you about the origins of the use of these kind of things in our in our human history? Because there's the Timothy, right. what's his name? Not Leary. Leary. The Tim Leary idea that, oh, no, we, yep. we ate the mushrooms off the cow shit and we had this gigantic you know, ex- brain explosion and then discovered language. Yep. And that's what changed us from the other hominids. I don't know if there's any research to support that, but it'll be fascinating to know what you've, you've uncovered. It is in Terence McKenna Ter- as well. That's the one. Tem- Terence McKenna. Yeah. That's yeah. the one. Yeah, I think, yeah. Terrence, yeah. I've got yeah. to consume with Timothy Leary. Yeah. Tem- Terence yeah, McKenna. Yeah, yeah. 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 I mean, look, who would know? I mean, it's, yeah, you've got to, wa- yeah. I mean, that's, it's a pretty out there kind of a theory, but you know, like it's interesting that obviously we know that there's this long history of use of psycho- psychoactive substances going, you know, and we know this from, you know, rock mural, you know, rock art yeah. in Spain and Algeria and, you know, there's pictures of uh, mushrooms and in sort of ceremonial contexts and whatnot. So we know that this has been happening uh, in Indigenous tribes, you know, in South America and, and, um, and you know, like peyote and... Mm. Uh, magic mushrooms and and of course ayahuasca. So we know that people have these transformative experiences. Um, so you know who knows? I mean, if if uh, it has it, it has impacted human 
the the mind over time, uh, you know, it's they're, they're very they're obviously very powerful substances. Yes, um, and and the stories that we hear about them, certainly where I was growing up in Brisbane, they they were never, oh, this person uh, ingested this particular drug and had uh, an a, astounding experience where they suddenly realized they were all one with everything and every molecule around them and went yeah. from being the world's biggest asshole to being the kindest, most incredible human of all time because they understand that the power of the universal divinity runs through them. No, it was never that. It was took a trip, thought he could fly, jumped off a roof, dead. Don't do right. it. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's as you say, you know, historically these these drugs in, and when they've been used in ceremonies or whatnot, there's been this framework around them. So it's been this sort of they, they haven't been used recreationally historic. Yeah, you know, going back in the ages so much, it's been more as part of divine ceremonies and whatnot. And and within that, there was this framework. There was a shaman who would oversee this and and provide this sort of structure. Then in the, you know, in the, the 60s, 70s, uh, there was this more, I mean, it's probably a, a mixture of partially recreational use. I mean, it's probably people were doing it for all sorts of reasons. People were doing, some would be doing it for self-discovery, but others would be going to a, a whatever, some kind of a party and, and recreational use. And I guess the issue there is there's no kind of container or structure. And it was interesting, I was talking to one of the researchers that led this NDMA trial in treatment-resistant PTSD. Yeah. So there's been now two big phase three trials of, of NDMA for for, treatment, for PTSD. And I sort of asked him about, you know, that phenomenon of the uh, the come down. You know, people, I said, did, did the participants in the study... I think it's, I think it's known as Ecky Tuesday, Adam, but I don't know, uh, <laughs> I don't know what you guys call it. But, uh... <laughs> But Ecky Tuesday, yeah, I, I sort of said, oh, do, does that happen? Because you, you, obviously you've got patients with BCSD, they've got a you know, serious condition, and then you're giving them something you know, do, that might lead to, you know, it's all well and good whilst they're on the mm. medication, but what happens the following week? Yeah. And he said, actually, interestingly, they didn't observe a come down in the participants. And, and some of the reasons for that is, is because the context is very different. The, the participants, they're getting... 100% pure MDMA, number one, pharmaceutical-grade MDMA. The, the dose they're getting is is very, very much known, so it's very, very controlled. They're not consuming other substances with it. They're not consuming alcohol with it. They're not, they're not up all night or up for days on end. They're in a very controlled environment, and there's all this therapy that goes around it. Um, there's psychotherapy with, with two therapists in the, in the dyad. So it's a very different... All of those factors mm. meant that there wasn't a come down, which you might experience. And, and if you think about recreational use, it's, you know, up for days, polysubstances, alcohol, sleep deprivation. Regret. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Shame. yeah. Um, no, kind of, no kind of way to, <laughs> yeah. um, to contextual or to sort of have a sort of insights necessarily no. into the experience with trained professionals. So they're very different. Mm. They're, they're very different contexts. And um, what's been happening recently Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Is investigation of psychedelics in this research context, which is, you know, obviously a lot more, more of a container around it as opposed to recreational use, which can be, you know, as you say, I mean, in these extreme cases, you know, people misadventure, you know, if someone is high on a psychedelic and they, you know, they, they could, something bad could happen if they're wandering out around in yeah. an you know, unsupervised context. So you can buy four litres think- of cask wine for 10 bucks, drink it all in one sitting and do something just as dumb, but that's legal. That's true. That's true. Um, <laughs> so, whether, yeah, yeah. I mean, look, we we do live in a in a society where there are certain substances which are legal, which are which can be quite dangerous. It's the it's um, the maybe. it's the duality. I mean, I, you don't want to get drawn into this with me, but it's the duality of that. Like when people are upset about pill testing, I'm like, fuck. You could I could walk across the street from where I live and buy enough gin to kill me for less than twenty bucks. It's not the yeah. good one. It's the one in the plastic bottle they get from out the back. But you can still do it. And but yeah. I'm ha- I'm completely freely legally able to do that. And yet, yes. some kid who's going to a festival can't test their pill to make sure they're okay. Please, yeah, come on, man. Look, I, I think you know, I I do believe in a harm minimization, yeah. you know, approach to to recreational drugs. You know, so but I, I think it's it's a you know, this whole area is fraught with, um, you know, complicated yeah. politics and, and whatnot. And especially when you're dealing with something like psilocybin mushrooms, which have a long history of only ever being bad or the thing that turned their kid, you know, and never came back from a trip or was still out there. Yeah. You know, occasionally, you know, I would see when I lived in, um, uh, when I used to live in Bondi, it was a terrible joke, but I would see this guy. And I would make, I would just make the comments like that guy looks like he went to a rave in 2002 and never really yeah. made it home because he was wearing the same clothes. You know, yeah. it was the fashion yeah. he was wearing. He looked like 15 years too old for them. But, yeah. you know, yeah. so that's the, but that's the only story that we hear about these kind of drugs. Why, you know, you're talking about a clinical dosage is yeah. when that's com- a completely uncontrolled dosage. Like, so you could take it one weekend yeah. and then the next weekend, it could be two completely different things. You know, I don't know if you bought it from a boy called Stan who lives in Boona, don't do that. Uh, but, you know, uh, you know, you've taken two completely different dosages. It could be a completely yeah. different experience, but you're talking about a, a, a clinically controlled absolutely measured, precisely delivered dosage in a super safe environment. What does, what things is it that the psilocybin does in the brain that other drugs don't do that offers the relief from this kind of depression? I should say another, another thing about this, you know, this example you gave, um, one of the things in the, and talking about trials is we do, we, it's important we screen out people that might be at risk of developing psychosis. So if someone has a history of psychosis and they're depressed, they wouldn't, they wouldn't enter, you know, basically all the trials, they wouldn't be able to enter the trial. And secondly, it can also be up to, even if there's a family history of psychosis, um, they would be screened out from going to the trial because of concern about, you know, inducing 
psychosis. So if you could just forget about all the times that I told you when I was smoking hydroponic weed in Adelaide and losing, you know, kind of control of where reality began and ended, just forget that part when it comes to saying I could be a part of the trial. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, nah. Like yeah. I would, so I'd I'd be think, out. I, I would be out. There'd be no way that you'd ever let me okay. go near it. Go near it. And and again, in a in a trial context, it's you can do that, you know, versus someone that's yeah. just out there buying it off the street. We don't, none of us know, none of us know what gene expressions we have. None of us know what predispositions yeah. we have. Yeah. None of us know. Yeah. Our parents might have never told us about stuff that happened before we were born. They might have never told us that, oh, by the way, there's a history of this or there's, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's, that, that's true. But I guess, yeah, trying to get that information, yeah, is obviously important um, in terms of who you enter into a trial versus yeah. not. Um, and then, yeah, in terms of what, what these uh, psychedelics sort of do to the brain, I mean, we're still really trying to understand that, but certainly one of the sort of common mechanisms, I guess, is acting, again, acting on serotonin, mm -hmm. but um, acting on the, the, the 5-HT2A receptor. And um, in, in rat studies where rats are administered and rats and mice are administered psychedelics, there's actually, a, a, and particularly when I'm talking, I'm talking mostly about psilocybin because mm -hmm. that's the the one where the probably the most research is going in mm -hmm. into neurons actually grow. So if you look at the rat rat brains, the neurons actually grow, and there's in, increased numbers of um, connections between neurons, and basically increased connectivity that's occurring in the brain. And one of the you know the other purported mechanisms is is the default mode network, which I know that you're interested in very much. And this is this default mode network is really what the brain is doing when we're not paying attention to things. So it could be, you know, we're daydreaming, we're going into our own cell, uh, cells, we're not actively paying attention. This default mode network is sort of the background activity of the brain. And what, what psilocybin does is it quietens this down. And by quietening it down, it then allows other brain networks to communicate. So it's sort, of, it's sort of quite interesting. And then afterwards, the hope is then some of this, this brain that's been quite shut down with perhaps an, over, uh, an overactive default mode network. Yeah. After the experience, it's actually been able to form some new connections. And you can imagine that's quite important for a depressed brain that's been quite shut down. You know, stuck in negative thought patterns, negative ruminations, the, you know, with this sort of distorted thinking about the the, the, the patient's self esteem and the world, you know, they might they might in reality seem to have you know quite a good life, mm. and people say, why would you be depressed? But their, their brain is very shut down, and it doesn't really matter what's going on around them; they can't kind of get out of that shutdownness. And the idea is with with this sort of rebooting that psilocybin does, wow. um, there can be this. This, so basically what you're wanting is to have a, you've got the acute effect of the psychedelic, but you're wanting some sustained effects afterwards, obviously. Because you, yeah, you know, There's no point if yeah. there's just the acute effect and then it wears off, you want it to be kind of locked in. Yeah. And, and, and that's the most extraordinary thing about, about brains. And it gave me a huge amount of hope when I think you and I went through four different combinations of meds, I think, between us. And then I think before I worked with you, there was, I think I had two or three other, like I tried air, like so many different combos and dosages and everything, you know, and yeah. you know, the idea that being that was, I was saying before about the ketamine stuff is that while all that stuff's working, 
I then do the hard work of trying to find new ways to think about things. And then hopefully, you know, that's those are the automatic responses to input, whether it be a facial expression or, in my experience, the sun on my skin. Um, yeah. And yeah. it is, as you mentioned, more neurons connecting. That is, you know, so the, the part of my brain that felt comfortable questioning a thought going, hang on, is that actually real? Like, stop talking to the part of my brain that was deciding what was real. And yes. so I could no longer challenge I could no longer challenge my thoughts. I could no longer challenge my own anxiety or my own depression. And yes. once we finally unlocked it and started working, I was able to go, hang on a minute, where's the evidence for that? And yeah. ah, and then slowly, slowly, slowly over time, matchstick by matchstick, you know, when I build a skyscraper, that allowed those thoughts now to be far more automatic. Um, yeah. It still takes work and it's fine. I make sure I do the work every day, but it's yeah. I, I couldn't believe it. And, and so when you're in those spaces in those psychedelic spaces are people like does it sound like Jimi Hendrix's purple haze like are they listening to Sid Barrett records or is it you know what's the sessions like do they last a long time no yeah okay I can tell you there's a trial that um that I'm involved in currently we're in the, the setup phase really uh and yeah essentially it's quite you were asking how does it, how is it how is psychedelic sort of different to the standard medications I guess your standard medications can take a long time to kick in whereas the psychedelic experience is a lot more immediate mm. and really the model is um it's quite different so usually you know if you go to your your gp or your psychiatrist and get your script for whatever it might be you know your snri well hopefully there'll be some psychological work as well but um yeah basically you, you go on your way and it's going to take weeks for the medication mm. to start to work this is a lot more immediate um but it does involve sort of three phases as like preparation. So the patient would, would come in and they need to know what they're about to experience, obviously, because it's going to be pretty, pretty profound. So they need to be well prepared for that ahead of time. And what do you so mean by profound? What s suddenly r realizing that sense of oneness? Because uh, there's, a yeah, part of the, mean, there's a part of the brain that shuts off and then opens. Is it the difference between knowing where I stop and the world begins? Is that the part of the brain that... Yeah, I mean that can be part of it. I mean, I, I guess um, there's a lot of different ex there's a lot of different um, experiences, but you know, changes in colors, sights, sounds, mystical experiences, mm. ego dissolution, uh, where people can have this sense of that they're no longer an I anymore, wow. and they're sort of part of the you know the whole cosmos. So it can be really profound. Um, also, yeah, yeah, mystical or religious experiences. So they need to be very prepared mm -hmm. that that may happen ahead of time. So there's some preparation sessions with, and, and you, the model is actually interesting. Is two therapists, not just one. You have two mm -hmm. therapists. So that that is that the preparation sessions. Then you come in for an actual treatment session. So that, again, the study that I'm doing, it's our hospital, but we've sort of made the room uh, not like a hospital room mm -hmm. um made it sort of quite a bit more comfortable and because we know that the mindset going in is important and also the setting so the set and setting are important so you know if you had a cold clinical hospital room you know public hospital room it wouldn't probably lead to a very positive outcome no the smell of um, domestos and oneness yeah. doesn't really click yeah yeah that's right and the that's beep, right so code blue like no no, it's, that's going to be, that's going to lead to the opposite yeah. of um, <laughs> an antidepressant it's effect. True. So it's, so it's, yeah, the rooms will put a lot of effort into making them 
comfortable. Mm. There's nice artwork. There's you know no, there's soft furnishings, some um, warm lighting. Yeah. Patient comes in. They're administered the capsule, and then usually they 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 kind of lie down on a sort of cap sort of daybed type scenario. Um, they have eye shades on and they listen to music. So, and that, that is, that's usually actually part of the protocol mm -hmm. is a playlist. Uh, and a lot of work goes into, you know, what is on this playlist and why is that done? Well, the, the, basically it's thought that it really, by, by having music there, it, it brings on the effects of the drug and it, it kind of it leads to you're aiming for the so-called peak experience. Yeah. So you have music that sort of builds, have the big experience, and then you and then you have music that sort of brings the the patient out of it. And the whole process takes between six to eight hours. Wow. So it's a full day, and you've got the two therapists there that basically act as a, as in a support role. So they are there to, you know, it's, a, it's the patient. They might get scared. They might get. They might have some kind of an insight, which is very challenging. The mm. idea is the therapists are there to to be an anchor, if you like. And then the following day, they come back for what's called integration sessions. So this is where the individuals you've uh, they're out of that acute psychedelic mm -hmm. headspace, and they're then able to sort of discuss. Well, what you know, I had this experience. What does it mean? Mm -hmm. You know, I had this insight into. Some, something that happened when I was young, I, I can see it from a different perspective now. Yeah, or yeah. Perhaps this aspect of my life, I'm, I'm being held back, and it's making me depressed. So, and the therapists help help the patient kind of make sense yeah. of what they went through, in the idea that they can kind of then bed that down yeah. and and have some lasting change. So that's sort of yeah. In essence, that's what the that's fascinating. Most of the studies use that model, which is the, the preparation, treatment, integration, and then it's and then you you got the two therapists there. Typically, you know, some of the studies to date are usually just a couple. You know, might be one treatment only, or there might be a few um, treatment sessions. And some of the early data is showing antidepressant effects that that are you know persisting. You know, three to six months later. Wow. So it's positive, but again, I also don't want to, I don't want to say it's going to be a cure-all um, and there are going to be patients who, you know, potentially do go into our trial and who won't, who, who won't respond, you know, to, to psilocybin. Um, the early data is suggesting though that there is a proportion yeah. where it may be helpful. Um, and, and so that, you know, that is exciting. The six to eight hours, like I'm nearly fifty. I have to pee at least once an hour, at least. Like, what if you what if you need to do a wee? You come out of this beautiful room, get walked down the hall, full of lizards. Like, what happens? Yeah, look, you, your eyes are very valid, uh, you know, and and you have to think about these things because um, you know patients are potentially going to be acutely affected, you know, by a psychedelic. So again, you have to sort of think about, we've had to think about the setup that there, there is a, there's sort of an access to an ensuite, oh, which right. is private. Okay. And, you know, you can't, because again, you know, we, it would be totally inappropriate if, if, if uh, someone in our trial had to walk five minutes through the hospital, it just wouldn't, yeah. So, and again, they have to be sort of escorted to the ensuite and yeah. we're going to have to make sure that they're, you know, yeah. that they're okay. Um, so all those things are, 
when you run a trial, you have to do some good Yeah, being high in a person. public toilet is never fun. I don't care who you are or what you're on. Fluorescent lighting and that kind of high, no fun. Why two psychologists? Why two therapists? Why? Yeah. So it, historically, like back in the 60s, 70s, that's how it was done. Oh. And one of the reasons was, you know, sadly in psychiatry, there is a, there is a history of, you know, things like boundary violations. You know, in other words, therapists, you know, acting inappropriately towards patients, towards vulnerable patients. I mean, it's sad that that's the case, but it is the case. And you imagine if you've got a, a, a patient, you know, with a mental illness is, you know, you could argue has some vulnerability, then add in a psychedelic to that. They're, they're in an incredibly vulnerable state. Um, so by having two therapists in the room, um, you've got to really reduce the chances right. of, you know, number one, any type of boundary violation. Secondly, it's also, it's quite a lot really for one therapist to be able to sort of manage someone potentially that's in this altered state. Yeah. So having two um, is thought to be um, required really. Um, it also allows the therapist to go to the toilet and things yeah. like that because it's a full day, right? So you need to, and typically it's one, usually, but not always, but usually it's a male and a female yeah. as well. So it's thought, again, that it offers a sort of a, a gender yeah. balance there and that you might get, you know, some different kinds of support from, from a male or a female. So it sort yeah. of complements. Yeah. It's, ex it's a, extraordinary. And it sounds like you've thought so much about this and, you know, to have those kind of boundaries around it to put the trust in this, you know, in this, in this trial, because the person, you know, doesn't know what they're in for if they haven't done yeah. it before. Certainly a long way from things we've heard about, like MKUltra. I think that was a, the CIA one where they, uh, yeah. you know, literally drugged soldiers without their realizing it. Well, look, I mean, look, Dave, and back in the, you know, the 60s and 70s, I mean, the reason why all the research got shut down, it's obviously complicated, you know, there was the, you know, political things going on in the US at the time and, you know, anti-Vietnam War, crazy, you know, all that kind of thing. But a lot of the research just wasn't well done. Yeah. And that actually contributed to the whole field being shut down. Um, yeah, some really famous um, experiments where the researchers also took the psychedelic at the same time as the participants, you know, and that, that was sort of, so there was sort of the, the research framework back then was just nowhere near as robust as yeah. it is today, you know? So I think we, we're coming to it now with, you know, uh, one would hope structures in place that have Im improved yeah. in terms of human research ethics. Secondly, we can also, you know, in terms of brain imaging technology and stuff now, that wasn't around in, yeah, back yeah. then. Though. So we can, you know, functional MRI, for example, you yeah. can put someone that's on a psychedelic in an fMRI machine and see what's lighting up in the brain. I mean, that, and so our understanding about what's actually going on in the brain is incredible now. Man, like, I, because of all the shit I've been through with my hip, uh, you know, I've been in that many tubes and, like, I've only had a bad time once, but I've, it's sometimes it's not a great time, but it's, it's, you know, the amount of work I need to do to make it an okay time. I reckon I've, I must've done 30 MRIs, maybe more to be, right, in, to be in there tripping. Whew. 
It's a loud place to be. It's a lot. You can't move. You can't. You're in a tube. But I know yeah, what you're saying. Getting... Like it allows you to observe what's going on and actually see the bits of the brain that you're targeting. You can speak with the subject. But you're right. It, you know, it's again, it's the practicality of research. Like, there's only so much you can do, and it does have to be a balance between yeah. you know the information you want versus well, can yeah, what can you? What's feasible for a patient? Yeah. You know, is it feasible to? to do that and not all research is feasible when you are i mean we've been talking a lot about um i, I essentially like no, novel uses for um for medications and pharmaceutical yeah. things for the ways that brains sometimes have become uh due yes. to uh, a trauma or perhaps a previous drug uh experience and sometimes the way brains are where are you on the role that medication plays and like the idea that no that's just how this person is and you know that's that's their brain and this is how they go through life versus you know this person would probably benefit from medication yeah Oof. it's a it's, it's a, a tricky, tricky one, one i know it's a tricky one yeah i mean i think it should always be a discussion you know, it's definitely a two-way discussion, right, with the patient, and they're going to have a, a view on it. I mean, I, I I feel if it's really impacting their lives, uh, the way their brain operates, mm. and I feel that there, you know, there's something that could could help them, you know, just sort of get on with their lives a bit more, you know, and do the things that they want to do, you know, all the things that they, you know, whether it's just working or have or a friend, look another human in the or eye, you having know. A, uh, having a yeah, having a romantic relationship or like, something, and yeah, like, let's let's like, yeah, be honest. like, like people are by the time they get to you, so people are yeah. sick, you know. And yeah, they, yeah, so I guess I, I think if there's if there is something I feel that it might help them, um, then yeah, I think it's worth having that discussion. And yeah, but then you know, there's always trade offs, isn't there, in terms yeah. of side effects and things like that. So patients have to be aware, like you know, mm. it might help, but. There may be some downsides that would weigh that up. I think as it gets into the more severe range, then then I, I'm being more assertive in my recommendations. Like yeah, yeah. we really need we really need to get you onto something because yeah. you know, otherwise you might end up in a hospital type scenario. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And it'd be good to keep you out of hospital because um, yeah, you know that's going to create more issues. I don't think I ever had to have that conversation with you, but I have had that conversation with with because I was very right. resistant. I was super resistant. I was offered um, yeah. uh, antidepressants when I was twenty five. I didn't end yeah. up taking them until yeah. I was thirty two. Yeah, um, wow. Right. I just did, I was like I didn't want to be the person that needed them, and even when I was super sick. When I got mm. given the antipsychotics, I was told take them only when you need them. But I'm like, well, if I don't take them, then I don't need them, and I'm fine. Well, I fuck yeah. was was not. I did not want to be a person that needed these things. And, yes. and eventually the pain of being the person that needed these things became greater than the pain of the then, person who <laughs> didn't want to, you know what I mean? And then that was- Yeah, and I think sometimes it's, yeah, and I think that's okay. You know, sometimes yeah. patients have to come to their own, Man. you know, ultimately, you know, they, they have to be on board with it. Otherwise, it's just not going to work. Yeah, it was, it was tough on the people around me. And then if, when, I, when it all finally clicked, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's good. Look, I'm, I'm, you know, medicated now. I talk about it quite a bit. And, uh, you know, the idea, just from my own take on it, is the way I see it now, and particularly now, you know, the ADHD meds are in a pretty good space. Um, you know, we'll talk about that next time we talk. My whole life had been, 
I'd always kind of, you know, society that we live in has a certain number of systems to allow it to work, right? Has an education system, a healthcare system, a justice system, essentially a system of work, all right, to to get that money, the economic system. When I am medicated, it is easier for me to engage with those systems. That's how how I'd put it. Yeah. All right. I can see... Looking back when I through my life, particularly when I was younger, when I wasn't medicated, it was difficult to engage with those systems, particularly yeah. the education system and the system, yes. the economic system. Because so I just didn't, I couldn't figure it out. It was just beyond me. But being medicated allows me to engage with those systems a bit better. And um, wow. and, and and you know, the system of being in a romantic relationship with someone that I have a family, we have a family together, and that is a lot yeah. easier. Um, yeah, because of that. Yeah, and you know, w- the, the idea of a shortcut to it being better is always quite a tasty, tasty thing. Uh, there are people in my life who, um, look, they they microdose through the day because they feel it helps them do the thing. Yeah. Um, what What would you say to, to people who, uh, you know, they are trying to find, you know, a way to access yep. the kind of well feeling? I don't want to say wellness because it's such a shitty word. Feeling mm-hmm. feeling better that you and this research is trying to find, but they're trying to get there quicker. What would you say to people who are trying to use these drugs in the same vein, but in an unregulated way? Yeah, microdosing is interesting. There's just no strong data on it. I am involved in a trial though, um, (laughs) which is going to be looking at microdosing psilocybin for um, uh, moderate, severity depression because there isn't any data so we, we don't just don't know a whether it's really doing anything because it's at such low doses and is it actually really doing anything or are people just is a sort of placebo and people are feeling better both of which are fine by the way the research i'm doing for this i've got this pain project that i'm working on okay and yeah. the the placebo stuff with pain is fascinating yeah. man yeah yeah the Even placebo when you te- i'm giving you a placebo for the chronic back pain you're experiencing here it comes how's your back feel way better like <laughs> even when they know their brain to it's amazing <laughs> so i think people sort of accessing stuff i guess in the microdosing world, we, we just don't know and i guess again safety you know is it safe to be exposing yourself to uh, you know psilocybin or whatever it might be not just once, not the slice, but, uh, you know, if it's a daily or every three days for a period of yeah. years, is that safe? No one knows. It could lead to problems, you know, either mentally or physically. Yeah. So I think it, it's a bit risky um, to be doing it. But you're probably, you're talking to a cohort of people, the kind of people that uh, I know that do this, are the kind of people that have, like, microdosing psilocybin for them is, yeah. like, like mate, I've I've snorted mystery powder off a toilet in a nightclub. Yeah. Like, come on, this is like way further down the ladder than that. This is like, well, like... yeah. I mean, I think you know, mate. Look, maybe people feel like you know the micro makes them feel like, well, you know, how bad can it be? But yeah, right. I guess we just don't know. We nah. just don't know. So I, I think again, this is where science needs to answer the questions. I think people are doing it, but I think we do, we do need some robust studies to say, does it actually do anything? Yeah. Um, and is it safe? And then we can make, then people can make informed choices. Yeah. And then, you know, like say, yeah, like a young person at the moment, you know, I'd be pretty uncomfortable if they were sort of starting to microdose, if they've got to develop it, you know, their brain's developing. I mean, you yeah. know, that might be a very bad thing, right? So I feel like we do need the, 
the studies. And I did also want to talk about the legislative changes. Just taking a moment away from Dr. Adam Bayes to say, um, come to the gig, come to the gig, come to the gig, uh, Manning Bar, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday this week. We will be there, NTNN, NNN. It's um, really fun. Real stories, fake news. It's a fake news show. It looks like and feels like a TV show, and it's really, really fun. We are doing our best to convince a big network to try and buy it and put it on air. So I'm not going to say which night the network are coming, but they are coming. A lot of them are coming, and I'd love to have lots of people in the room that are going, fuck, that's hilarious. Oh, God, I wish this was on TV every night or at least once a week. 8.30 would be great. I think 8.30 would be a great time for this show, don't you? I sure do. Like, have those kind of conversations loudly. It'd really help us. <laughs> Tickets are in the show notes. We're, I have to play some ads now because I like to pay the people that work here at the show. And we're back with Dr. Adam Bayes in a moment. How is it navigating? Like, we've got a governmental system in our country that is run by people who've been, you know, pre-selected by something and probably have no idea of the... I've probably got more knowledge about this stuff than some of these people who are making yeah. up their minds, yeah. um, you know. Yeah. You know, yes, they'll get handed a 180-page briefing note from someone who does your job and they'll go, yeah, yeah but should I do it? Uh, yeah. <laughs> expecting a one-sentence answer because they've got to get on with their day. So what are the what have the challenges been in this country around this kind of work and 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 you know where are yeah. we going? Essentially the in the past few years, uh there's been some research in Australia into psychedelics, you know, um and but still the still the psychedelics remain illegal, schedule nine drugs, right? So there's there's a, they're, they're illegal, but they can be used in clinical trials if special permits uh, sought, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's the framework that, that I've been working in. And these trials, you know, they're, it's very much a research framework mm -hmm. and the drugs are illegal and they require, you know, special storage and handling, right? But then there has been some lobbying of the TGA, yeah. Therapeutic Goods Administration, basically saying these drugs should be down-scheduled down to Schedule 8, which means they can be prescribed. And uh, interestingly, the TGA originally knocked back um, the application, and, uh, but they, re they reviewed it, and now they have, the TGA, as of the 1st of July, has um, said that for treatment-resistant depression, psilocybin can be prescribed and MDMA can be prescribed for PTSD as of the 1st of July. Only So basically the drugs remain illegal, Schedule 9, for all other purposes other than those two indications. Mm -hmm. So that was a big surprise. I, I think everyone that works in the field was quite surprised. There are and then of course I was contacted immediately by lots of people to say well when, am, when are you going to prescribe me you know, uh, psilocybin. And I had to say, well, we don't know exactly how this is going to work. What the CGA has said is these drugs can only be prescribed by a psychiatrist mm -hmm. and that the psychiatrist must be an authorized prescriber, which means they have to go through a sort of, uh, uh, basically it proves that they've got experience with yeah. these drugs and et cetera, et cetera. And that the treatment has to be approved by an ethics committee. So even though it's not occurring in a research context, mm -hmm. 
that it must be approved, must be authorized by a human research ethics committee. So no one really knows as of 1st of July how this will work, but it certainly adds a bit of complexity to the framework. So essentially now you've had two tracks. You've got still the research taking place. And I would argue that we don't know much about these drugs. You know, like we really don't know that much. So we've got to be doing the, you know, these important safety and, and efficacy studies, right? And actually, normally the TGA would require a higher level of evidence than is currently available, but they've somewhat surprisingly decided to, um, yeah, allow it within this framework. So it's, it's interesting. So you're going to have the research, which will continue, but then at least theoretically, clinicians would be able to provide these drugs outside of a research protocol. So it's, it's very interesting. And we're one of the first places in the world. Wow. For this to happen, so it it's it adds a lot of complexity to the the field. Well, uh, well, good good on the TGA for giving it a shot. Understanding that there's a lot of people out there who are very very much struggling and are <coughs> looking for answers, and yet I I think we're a fair way away from you you know prescribing me fifty literally fifty caps and then sending me on my way. Like I'm guessing that like, won't happen. No, yeah. exactly. Like I'm, I can't go. I can't just go and grab some adazolam. No, 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 no. Like that's like a, yeah. a you know weapons grade benzodiazepine that can only be infused in a hospital by yeah. a particular. Not even the regular nurse has to do it. The one with the special key has to go and do it. You know. Yeah. So I'm guessing yeah. it's that kind of situation. Look, I'm I'm hoping that it is going to be yeah very tightly controlled, obviously, because I guess come, I come at it from a from the re- research side of things, which is I'd hate to see things go backwards. Right? Uh, yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And and that happened with you know that did happen with with ketamine, which was which is not Schedule Nine. It's always been legal at the Schedule Eight, and you know early on there was some clinics that opened that weren't doing the right thing. Right. And it's kind of it kind of set things backwards. So as long as there's the robust framework, because we yeah. are sort of what's happened is we're sort of jumping a little bit ahead of where the evidence actually is. Yeah. And so it's you know normally you would have uh, phase three uh, randomized controlled trials that hasn't happened in the case of psilocybin yet. There is more evidence for MDMA for PTSD. But for psilocybin, we don't really know. And, and also, you know, the, the studies are, are fairly, the studies that are small, very carefully selected patients without comorbidities. We don't really know how it's going to apply to patients, you know, out there in the real world that often don't just have treatment-resistant depression, but they've got drug and alcohol issues and they've got, you know, other comorbidities. And so it's, yeah, so it's an, it's an interesting space. I think, yeah, you can see it from a lot of different perspectives, really. You know, from the patient side of things, I can see for patients with severe treatment-resistant depression that have tried everything, how they are wanting. You know, they are saying, you know, can I please access something to help me? Yeah. I, I totally get that. On the other hand, I also think first do no harm. Yes. So we, we need to be not creating problems for patients by, uh, you know, giving them something that's quite powerful and then, yeah, causing issues. So, And you certainly wouldn't, wouldn't want to have it go askew and then have a government go, okay, that's it, and then pull the pin completely and then put everything that, back I think that would be years. really sad um, because yeah. we know, because it's been, it's interesting, I, I've spoken to some some researchers who are 
sadly mostly men, but they were, you know, they were working in the in the sixties and seventies mm. doing research. And I, I've spoken to them just recently. Wow! And so they and they were they're talking about how fantastic in the U.S. You know how fantastic it is that research is starting up again. But they had fifty years where they weren't allowed to do research, you know, oh. and they were doing it back then. So I wouldn't want them to go backwards. No. That that would be my only concern. How it got pushed ahead so fast is probably a whole other discussion, but it sounds like this is something that even though this treatment comes with great promise, it sounds to me, Adam, like this is something that we need to approach extraordinarily carefully. 100%. 100%. I think there's great promise, there's great hope, but yeah, I think we, we need to be sort of really understanding more about these powerful drugs and working out, you know, which psychedelic for which condition and what, what kind of psychotherapy to wrap around it. Yeah. And also, you know, who shouldn't have the treatment? You know, there's going to be people out there that if they yes. have had psychosis themselves or family history, it's not going to be for them. Mm. Yeah, but look, it's a, it's a it's a fascinating fascinating space at the moment. The um the analog that I give around medication and mental health is um is always Lance Armstrong in that he can he can inject all the EPO he wants, right? Yeah, but he's still got to pedal his balls off to get up to the top of the Mount d'Huez to win the Tour de France, and he needs an entire team around him to make that happen. He needs twelve riders who will take the wind for four straight hours so he can do that. All right. I can't, you know, take EPO and then win the Tour de France. All right. Yes, it's the same thing, but it won't do it for me. Exactly. I, I think you hit the nail on the head. I think it, it's get increasingly it's it's you know it's it's the therapy that goes around it mm. um, with psychedelics. It's all as all the the application of those insights and integrating it into, into yeah. It's, it's, there's no sort of bypass if you like to sort of just go straight <laughs> there. It's a lot of hard work. It's going oh, to go I hope it goes. I hope. I don't know. You're probably, I'm, I'm guessing you're on the list of people who are allowed to do this, but I hope that the people they choose that are allowed to, you know, prescribe this stuff are all act in good faith and understand what's at stake. I hope there's not too many of them so you can call them up and ask them. Uh, but uh, <laughs> I certainly, you know, nobody would want to see, because, you know, the, my, I look at healthcare and I see what my parents went through, you know, yeah. as, as things kind of amalgamated. You know, if you, if you get like some giant national you know, we own 500 GP clinics and a hospital and an ambulance service kind of place go, and now we're going to do this. Like, wait, are you doing that because your shareholders want to do it or are you doing it because it's the best for the patient? Like, no, that for me would be travesty, you know? That's the thing I'm a bit concerned about here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that that is a concern. And if you look at, you know, globally, like there's a lot, there's uh, there's interest in Farmer and and other groups have have interest in psychedelics, obviously, because it's a whole new yeah. paradigm. So I think, um, yeah, I think there's some ethical concerns there, and you want to make sure that I think that the, the patient is always first and foremost. Yeah, if only if only you had a PhD in philosophy. Oh, that's right, you do, <laughs> <laughs> man. Like. I can't imagine, like, before you found psychiatry, like, I can't imagine, well, what would you, I know I've got a busy brain and I have to do a lot so I can be okay, but I can't yeah. imagine what your life would have been like had you not found, like, only the hardest thing ever <laughs> and then made it even harder and then harder still so you get to keep your mind on track. Like, you know, it's astounding, man. Never, I've never had, as I said, I've never had a dull day 
at work. I, you know, had some um, stressful days. I'll bet, but but never a dull day, which is which is good. And yeah, I mean that's a great. I remember sitting down with um, a family friend who was a psychiatrist, and when I was thinking, I was junior doctor, I was talking to him and and saying, oh, I'm thinking about you know, I want to do something with the brain, maybe neurology, maybe psychiatry. And he he was like, you know, for him, psychiatrist is the last frontier. Yeah. You know, it's the we really don't know much. We still don't know wow. anything really. Yeah, and um, and so and we described that. Uh, yeah, I was sort of like, okay, yeah, that that is appealing. Um, I know you probably know George Paxinos because he, you know, wrote yes. the wrote the Atlas of the, yes. of the of the rat brain that you spoke about earlier. But I'd <laughs> I'd love to get the two of you. To, I've had him on the show, man. We could, oh, yeah. we could have done hours together. Well, he rides bicycles and does Pilates and likes to swim. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, he's a nice guy. But you know, the, the idea of like listening to the two of you, maybe we'll do a live one together. Maybe we'll get together and we'll talk about consciousness and free will. I'm rereading Consciousness Explained. You know, have you read Daniel C. Dennett, Consciousness Explained? I know, I know of it. I haven't got to it yet. I, 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 lo- I had a copy of it and then it got thrown out and I thought, I better reread it because, you know, chat GPT, mm. everyone's talking, you know, about, you know, what's this chat GPT? Is it? And I thought, I better reread it to, you know, not that he necessarily explains consciousness, but it just to... You know, the Turing test and all this yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, and, yeah. and actually, he goes into this detail about it all. So I'm going to reread it so I can actually have an informed view about chat GPT. Oh, and you, oh, you, well, we're not going to give it to me now? Damn it. All right, so we'll wait for that. <laughs> no, no, no we'll, well, no, we'll wait for the live show. Um, look, I, I, clearly you love doing this and clearly yeah. you still get a lot out of it. And to clearly yeah. there's something in your heart that feels feels better to, you know, be there for people who are you know, if they're anything like my experience, like people who are literally like you're the last phone call they make, you know, yeah, like it yeah. can, you meet people on the, like the worst day of their lives quite often. And there's clearly something about it that keeps bringing you back. And, um, you know, I, for one, I'm grateful that you do the work that you do. And I'm sure there's thousands of others who are, man. Thank you. Um, and thanks yeah. for doing this. You know, um, it is an extraordinary area to explore and we're lucky to live in a country that looks at it like that. And, you know, just we talk about it, like the first car to ever go 100 kilometres an hour was in 19, I think, 1904 or 1905. It was an electric car, a fucking electric car in 1900-something. <laughs> Seatbelts didn't get made legal in Victoria until 1975. All right? yeah. So we went through 70 years of road trauma, death, dismemberment, chaos, destruction, yeah. right, before we went, maybe we should, what do you reckon? <laughs> yeah, how, see, yeah, let's try that. You know, so let's hope we're not, we don't take us that long around this stuff, but the utility of what it brings and what it promises um, is worth exploring. Worth exploring. I agree. Let's go carefully. I'm glad you're on the, I'm glad you're on the let's go carefully team, Adam, because you can help, you can help a lot of people here, man. You really are. Thank you. Great to talk, talk to you. Mate, I'm so grateful you asked me to come do this because, like, yeah, 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 I, no, I'm I... so into this stuff. And not that I'll ever participate in the trial. I know that, but I'm thrilled. I wanted to sort of get, I thought you would be a good person to talk to because I just wanted to get the, me, like, a sort of balanced message out. Yeah. And also talk about the legislative changes Mate. and try and do it in a balanced <laughs> way. And, you know. I'm glad. And that was Dr. Adam Bayes. What a guy. He's such a clever human being. And I adore that he dedicated his life and his career to satisfying his curiosity and helping people because 
God damn it, I've benefited from that. And clearly there are thousands and thousands of people who are about to if, if we get this right. If you like the sound of what Adam's working on, whenever you see fundraising for the Black Dog Institute, I'm here to tell you they are changing the world down there at Black Dog. They truly, truly are. If that conversation brought anything up for you, please give Lifeline a call, 13 11 14. Incredible people who are trained at the other end of the phone. They'll pick up your, pick up your call and they'll have a chat. They'll help you out. Or talk to your GP, talk to your doctor. If you're not in Australia, there's some things that get brought up in your brain that we don't have the ability to handle. That's fine. There's plenty of people that do. I'm not going to try to fix my car. I take it to a mechanic. If my brain starts to do shit like that, I go to see someone like Adam. So be smart, take action, go get a doctor. Um, Come to see the show. It is on Wednesday night at the Manning Bar, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Tickets are in the show notes. Thank you very much to everyone that helped me make this show. Bree Steele, who did an abundant amount of work on researching this show. Andy Marr on audio and video post-production. Toa Hyder on the music. And Rachel Barrett, my executive function assistant uh, and the executive producer of this show. And all the shows. Ah, that was a goodie. That was a long one. That was a, that was a long one. But fuck, worth it, man. Really worth it. I'm stoked. Stoked that I got to to introduce you to Adam. He's such a good bloke and more doctors like him. I say that's the, that's for me, that like, that's the bar. That's the bar of, you know, mental health professionals is someone who thinks with a curiosity and a, maybe I'm not, maybe I'm not right here. What else, what else could it be? Rather than, okay, I'll see you in a month. Like I've seen that guy and I wasn't better in a month. Adam is a good fucking bloke, man. All right. I'll see you at the Manning Bar. Bye.